Coming up on This Week in Games is the Decade in Review. I'll be going over trends, successes, failures, everything that was the decade of the 2010s. Coming up, This Week in Games. It's that time of the week for your video game industry news rundown. I'm your host, Eric McConnell, and welcome to the Decade in Review. A lot happened in the last 10 years. Kind of the game industry shifted from walled console gardens with yearly box game releases to multi-platform games that live on for decades. Let's kick it off. First up, indie games. The indie game boom really kind of kicked off in 2008 when Braid caught the eye of Soldier Boy. No, I'm just kidding. But that, that was kind of like... An iconic moment when Soldier Boy made a video of him playing Braid high out of his mind. Triple A was no longer the most popular dream of talented young developers. Everyone wanted to be an indie game dev darling and make millions off smaller but more passion-driven games. Indie Game the Movie came out in 2012, and the indie game boom was in full effect for the last 10 years. So let's point out some highlights super meat boy one of the stars of indie game the movie this duo team perhaps fared the best out of the three featured development teams there super meat boy combined the spirit of hard platformers like i want to be the guy with 80s and 90s pop culture kind of game culture and nostalgia i love the homage to street fighter 2's arcade opening where the two guys like punch each other but it's with super meat boy characters in the game great classic Next up, Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley was featured in the excellent book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. It's my favorite chapter of the book, in fact. Stardew Valley has kind of mostly been a love letter to early Harvest Moon games developed over five years by a single developer, Eric Barron, who did almost everything in the game from art, music, sound, programming. I think he did almost everything. Really a testament to not fixing what isn't broken and that integrity and grit is a recipe for success in any creative industry. Also, we can't forget Minecraft. Who could forget the ultimate indie game fairy tale as Mojang, led by Marcus Pearson, also known as Notch, created the ultimate digital playground known as Minecraft. Minecraft again proved that fancy shaders and high production values aren't needed to create a billion dollar game. All you need is to give people a place for their imagination to run wild. Mojang sold to Microsoft for an astonishing $2.5 billion in 2015, and Notch famously outbid Jay-Z and Beyonce for a $70 million home in Los Angeles. Many other instant classic indie games were released, but I can't cover them all. We had Celeste, Limbo, Shovel Knight, Cuphead, Bastion, FTL, many, many, many more, but kind of like 2010, uh, 2008 and 2009 were the beginning of the indie game boom. 2010's like... The last decade was the real indie game boom. That's where indie games were like entering mainstream. Everyone's talking about them. Everyone talked about the indie game apocalypse, which kind of never happened. And indie games are still kind of a great avenue for talented developers who, you know, want to do everything. Next up, mobile games. Now, although mobile started to show promise towards the end of the last decade, this is when mobile took over the game industry. Mobile games went from making 50k a day to breaking 1, 2, and even 4 million a day in revenue. This industry spawned clones after clones to the point where over 500 games were released every day on the iOS app store. The industry went from relying on network effects from social media networks to discoverability being 
almost as big of an industry as the actual games themselves. CPI versus LTV became the only thing that mattered, and now the top earners are shifting less and less because discoverability has turned into a pay-for-play black box. And this is also the area where loot boxes, gotcha machines, and predatory monetization tactics were developed and honed to their perfection. So let's go over the mobile game industry in the last 10 years. Candy Crush Saga, originally a browser game, this bejeweled derivative spawned hundreds and thousands of match three clones, and it's still one of the highest earning puzzle games to this day. King sold to Activision in 2016 for $4.9 billion, mostly off the back of this single game Candy Crush Saga. <coughs> Sorry about that. Next up, Puzzles and Dragons. This is kind of like the next evolution of the match three formula. This time with drag swiping, complex RPG mechanics, and gotcha machine galore. This is where the this is the first game to consistently make over a million dollars a day in revenue, and the first mobile game to break one billion dollar in total sales. Itself spawned off another thousands of match RPG mashups and opened the doors for other match three mashups like Homescapes, kind of like Investment Express match three. Clash of Clans, although Supercell was known for their was already known when this game was released for their first hit heyday. Um, which is kind of like a perfected Farmville iteration. It was Clash of Clans that cemented them as the biggest Goliath in mobile gaming. Clash of Clans perfected social within asymmetric strategy games and arguably had one of the best onboarding experience for any mobile game of the decade. Eventually, this would be eclipsed by Clash Royale, their later hit in 2016. This game took mobile kind of gaming by storm and supercell has become somewhat of the mythical developer ever since you know i even hear of like former supercell employees constantly getting hired as consultants to go into other mobile studios and explain how supercell can actually make hit game after hit game pokemon go who can forget kids breaking into people's backyard to capture a charizard pokemon go was and still is the high point for ar games as it provided the perfect blend of simple yet fun location-based game design with a thematic scheme that Kind of just felt right, you know, capturing Pokemon in the wild. This is this year uh, when I was working at Google, even this year when I was working at Google, you still see crowds of people running around campus on their cell phones trying to like complete raids with each other. It's, it's still a phenomenon. It still was a phenomenon. Probably won't go anywhere in the next decade either. Let's go to a low point. So Flappy Bird. Probably one of the lower points in mobile gaming in the last decade, Flappy Bird took the world by storm with its simple gameplay and simple network effect feature of sharing. This eventually led to a meltdown of the creator who took the game down during the height of his success. Flappy Bird was later accused of using bots to game the ranking algorithm within the app store and ultimately appear on the top of the charts. This just shows how kind of like little quality and integrity matters in mobile gaming to me as the top of the charts are the only thing that matters. If you get up there, people will play your game. And if you're not on there, people will never play your game. So Flappy Bird is kind of like a a sore spot in uh, my last decade mentally. All right, next up, games as a service. So growing slowly since the early 2000s, um, games as a service finally became mainstream in the last decade thanks to some mega hits. These games learned a lot from mobile live ops and monetization who learned it, who learned those techniques from 90s software as a service to bring in as many users as possible and keep them engaged for as long as possible. Now, 
Yeah, kind of games as a service was coined in the last decade, but even when I was in like middle school and high school, there were free-to-play games online from specifically South Korea that me and my friends would play a lot. There's a lot of MMORPGs and a lot of like, I remember uh, even like a strategy game called Shattered Galaxies that was a free-to-play kind of like mass strategy game. So it's been along for a while, but this is the decade that kind of like the whole industry shifted from these box games to games as a service even all box games now likely include some games as a service aspect to them fortnite fortnite's the current kingpin of games as a service right now the physical playground at schools has been replaced by this digital battle royale game starting off um as mods from daisy and armor 3 eventually player unknowns battlegrounds became a surprise hit only to be dethroned later by fortnite Fortnite popularized and marketed strategy of paying top Twitch streamers of your competitor games to only play your game for a set amount of time, shifting the entire zeitgeist of a community for less money than a traditionally traditional marketing campaign would require. The strategy would later be copied as Activision Blizzard themselves try to dethrone Fortnite with their own strategy with Apex Legends. Other call-outs should be that Fortnite was in development for seven years as a completely different game that no one actually remembers, and it was closer to Minecraft than it was to PUBG. This Battle Royale mode was, as far as I can tell, thrown in as the last uh, attempt to save the game that Epic spent many years making. And the other call-out for games as a service this last decade is Rocket League. So work for hire San Diego-based Psionics. Hit it big by marrying the most popular sport in the world, soccer, with uh, physics-based RC cars that have nitro boosters in them. Easily one of the most unique games as a service company that really blew up when PSN made the game the free game of the month that you get for subscribing to PSN. Recently, Psionics was purchased by Fortnite owner Epic Games. And, uh, you know, kind of games as a service goes hand-in-hand with esports, and there is a lot of big esports games. Um, They kind of break down into... MOBAs and shooters, but the only one we really need to talk about is League of Legends. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. Launched in 2009, technically. Um, I didn't play the game until I worked for the University of Southern California in 2011. League really hit it in 2013 during the second world championships where the finals were held at the Staples Center in Los Angeles, which generated tons and tons of mainstream news and coverage. League has, League was created off of kind of like dota which is worldcraft 3 custom map everyone knows um, the history about it but what i'm still amazed at is the popularity of the game given a kind of like it still uses that same warcraft 3 view and b the heavy nuances required to truly play and understand what the hell is going on in league of legends like bring in someone who doesn't know anything about mobas and have them sit down and watch a league of legends like world championship match it it's bizarrely confusing. Um, some of the most epic moments don't really even seem epic. No one knows what's going on. And this is the most played esport game in the world. And it's crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. And, you know, it's here to stay. <laughs> I thought it was every year, I think League of Legends is going away. And it seems to kind of dwindle and then just poof, get bigger than ever before. So esports are here, League of Legends is here. Another trend we saw in this last decade really was the death of VR and the failure to launch of AR. So on the other side of all the positives in the industry, there were a few negatives. Every developer and investor was hungry for the next big thing. In a few short years, we had social media, mobile apps, and the new Internet of Things hardware blowing up to billions and billions of dollars in revenue. 
what was the next paradigm shift going to be? Enter VR. Now, if you look at the history of business, generally there are a few things that must align for a billion-dollar company to be created overnight, and one of them is a paradigm shift in technology. Early firms on new platforms or paradigms generally reap all the benefits for the entirety of that platform. VR was sold as the next platform as hundreds of millions of dollars over the decade were poured into the industry with little to no payoff. It was so hard to tell if VR was fueled off of optimism or kind of greed, and I really, never really honestly got it. Like, I never played a VR game and thought, hmm, I'd like to do this for the next three hours, or, or hmm, don't take this away from me. I must keep playing. Where do you buy one of these? VR shows that even when the smartest people in the world, John Carmack, have unlimited money at Facebook, they can't force p platform shifts to happen. And it was kind of a great lesson for everyone. AR, AR, on the other hand, never died as kind of it never really took off. AR is really, really cool, but really, really expensive. Valve took a shot at, at making AR like early in the decade. Um, Magic Leap took one of the most expensive shots in history at it. Microsoft and Google both had AR offerings. Google killed theirs. Microsoft is still trying to get HoloLens to work. The difference is AR has something going for it. Like you can clearly see the advantage of AR and how you could integrate this into your life and how you and other people could connect around this like AR experience. I honestly believe AR is just too damn expensive right now and requires too much from the users. It, it never took off because a lot of AR like goggles, the good ones, you know, over $2,000. What, what kind of person has that kind of money to just spend on something? And what kind of developer is really going to dedicate a lot of time and effort to something that expensive, knowing that almost no one owns it? So kind of the death of VR and the failure to launch an AR. Another big story this decade, people forget, like, this decade began without Twitch. And we're going to talk about Twitch, like, so ridiculous. Justin TV was one of two streaming platforms used by video game communities in the last decade, along with Ustream. The fighting game community, which switch, they would kind of switch between the two based on who organized the tournament you're watching and uh, who was streaming the tournament matches. And in comes 2014 when Justin officially, Justin TV officially dissolved and focused on its most profitable wing games on Twitch.tv. Now, Twitch was created in 2011 and since then has become the most important community building and discoverability tools in gaming. Nothing since the days of Nintendo Power has the power Twitch has in the game industry. People are making eight figures streaming video games. Companies are creating franchises overnight by sponsoring Twitch streams. Entire esports leagues live and die on Twitch viewerships. In 2014, Twitch sold to Amazon for almost a billion dollars after being heavily courted by Google for years. And now Twitch, YouTube, Mixer, and whatever the hell Facebook streaming shit is called are signing exclusivity deals for the biggest streamers, some of these up to $50 million for a few years. So kind of Twitch changed the entire game of how to build communities, how to get games discovered, how to like craft a narrative around esports, like everything. Everything's around Twitch and you know it's really just a great tool all around. <laughs> but another tool that has its ups and downs, Kickstarter. Again, something that was created in 2009, so technically not this decade, but it really rose to prominence in the 2010s. 2012 saw Kickstarter 
record shattered as Shim Schaefer's double fine adventure raised over $3 million. 2012 also saw the ill-fated Uya raise $8.5 million. I just have to laugh. I mean, this decade, we had the Ouya guys. <laughs> 2013 had Lord Richard Garriott's Shroud of the Avatar raise $11.8 million. And Mighty Number no. 9 raised another $4 million to all disappoint us. 2015 had Shinmu 3 raise $6.3 million. Um, Obsidian gained financial independence with two huge Kickstarters, though both games cost more than the actual $4 million they raised to make. To date... Two out of every $10 spent on Kickstarter are for video games or tabletop games, and Kickstarter is much less used today than it was in the early 2010s, but it's still kind of like an available avenue for ideas that can stand out. I'd say early on, like, everyone saw this money being raised and went bonkers, but then everyone realized that, like, games cost a lot more. Even if you raise $4 million, if you're trying to deliver a high-quality game, it's going to cost more than $4 million. And on top of that, you're giving away your game ahead of time to your most, like, attentive users on Kickstarter. And so financially, it creates this negative loop, which you can read about online. I'm not going to go in now. But Kickstarter still is an avenue. Um, it's not as used as it used to be, but it was. you forget how big Kickstarter was early on. Like, it was such an exciting thing to see what crazy new game would appear on Kickstarter and raise millions of dollars. Um, another category of games that I think really kicked off this decade was art games. So I'm going to say art games are separate from indie games as they're crafted for different reasons. I feel like most indie games are nostalgia driven, whereas most art games are expression driven or they have a message or something of that nature. And I can accept that I may be full of bullshit. So take my categorization with a grain of salt. I think in my opinion, these are the three biggest art games, again, like indie games and other categories by no means an exhaustive list. So Journey. That game company was on top of the world in 2012 when they released Journey, a somewhat experiential game that led to one of my favorite GDC talks of all time by Genova Chin. Check it out. Um, Journey is one of those games that, although you're not going to see people like blatantly copy it, everyone who played it, who was a developer, took a grain of salt from Journey with them. And like, ah, this is how you convey this emotion. Maybe I'll use this in the future. You know, it's one of those games where you kind of take something with you from it and it kind of helps ever so slightly nudge the industry forward. Um, the next game I want to talk about, Papers, Please. 2013's Papers, Please had us questioning morality in a fictional country of Arztolska. I don't even know if I said that right. We are an immigration officer stamping papers. And this game is literally one of the most compelling experiences of the last decade off that premise. That's the premise. Um, honestly, Lucas Pope cemented himself as a game design genius with Papers, Please. He followed up with uh, the Oberdim game, which I'll get into later. I mean, Papers, Please, just great. Everyone needs to check it out. These are must-play games. And Her Story, definitely one of the riskiest games I've ever seen. Her Story uses real life, a real-life actress um and records performances and plays them back to you what appears to be during a police investigation your job is to uncover well her story and what she's getting investigated for designer sam barlow was already very successful in the game industry but like lucas pope became the game equivalent of a household name in 2015 when her story dropped all right i'm going to go over two books of the decade first up console wars by blake j harris Console Wars documents the historic rise of Sega of America 
to challenge the Super Nintendo at a time when Nintendo controlled something like 97 or 98% of the home video game market. If you work in the video game industry in any form of business, leadership, or strategic role, this book is a must. Go read Console Wars. I think you'll take something away from it. It's a very big, like, David and Goliath story. How did Sega go from the Master System, which, let's face it, no one owned the Master System, to actually, like, being head-to-head and equivalent with Nintendo in that one console generation. Great story. Go check it out. The next one is Blood, Sweat, and Pixels by Jason Schreier, a great book that documents grit within the game industry from top game studios in the world like Bungie to solo developers like I mentioned Eric Barone of Stardew Valley fame. My only gripe is that it paints some studios I have inside knowledge of in a more favorable light than they should be because those leaders are the ones telling the story. But honestly, it's a great read for anyone just starting out in the game industry or who wants to work in the game industry. It lets you know, like, really, like, this is what it's like. And this is what game development is. You know, they are blood, sweat, and pixels. And it's a great read. Go pick it up. All right. Let's kick it off with my favorite games of the decade. Um, I just haphazardly picked these. Could be wrong. These are just picked out of my head. You know, no rhyme or reason. I'm not trying to say anything. First up, Gorogoa. Gorogoa. I I can't even pronounce this game right. Gorogoa took the kind of like interaction that Framed had to levels I didn't think where it could go. It's truly one of the most unique puzzle games on mobile and worth checking out for the art and logic puzzles alone. Go check it out. There's nothing I can say. Like, go watch the trailer for Gorogoa, and you'll get it. Like, there's nothing I can tell you about it and that would describe it. And I think it's, like, $3. It may be $4. It's definitely worth a purchase. Everyone who listens to this should have played this game. Next up, Street Fighter Four. Nothing elevated esports community in my mind, more than Street Fighter 4. Again, released in 2008 in arcades and 2009 on consoles, this game really came to its own um, in the 2010s. It single-handedly revived fighting games and brought EVO, which is the world fighting game like biggest tournament, to record-breaking viewership. Um, and I think what Street Fighter 4 did is all these other games like League of Legends, Overwatch, you know, they all had big industries behind them, sponsorships. They had like their publishers like doing the esports. This was all community driven up until the end of the decade, but all community driven. Like Street Fighter 4 would have like people flying all over the world to every country to South America, Japan, Canada, all over the US to play in these major tournaments, be streamed, get sponsored. And it was all community driven. Like there's no overarching like person in charge. It was like the zeitgeist of the community loved it so much. Um, To me, it's like it's the highest end of community building. Um, Unfortunately, Street Fighter V was a complete disappointment for a number of reasons. But Street Fighter IV is cemented in fighting game history. Next up, Puzzles and Dragons. From its release at the end of 2012 to somewhere in 2014, to me, Puzzles and Dragons was the best designed mobile game ever. It had a perfect blueprint for soft currencies, premium currencies, stamina, gotcha, merge power-ups, asymmetric design, content runway, and so on and so on. Unfortunately, these games do tend to suffer from power creep, and that's exactly what killed Pad for me, but I have great memories of clearing the board every time with my Light Light Raw team. 
um, Puzzles of Dragons, man. It, it was a wild ride. Like, you had to go, I think it was called puzzlesanddragons.net. There was some fan site. And, like, the game was unplayable without you spending hours on this fan site, like, researching stuff. That's how complicated the game was at the higher ends. And it was just an amazing ride. Great game. It really, like, it, again, like I mentioned before, it was the first mobile game to make a billion dollars total in revenue. And it really, like, paved the way for onboarding, for, you know, plateaus and climbs of skill level to, like, how to kind of let free players continue playing and engaging with the game and being top players without pain, but also allowing your most dedicated, like hardcore fans to borderline spend as much as they want while all keeping the integrity of design together. I think Puzzles and Dragons again, um, man, it was such a great design game at its initial release. Next up, Bloodborne. Truly one of the best settings and themes of any game I ever played. I still can't tell you what the story is, and that doesn't really matter because the ambiance ambiance whatever the word is of the like victorian era like city you were in and everything was just it was really amazing it was really eerie and you couldn't quite understand anything outright or at least i couldn't and that was part of the charm is like you were confused and scared and almost like kind of like you're you were just like investigating what you were what was going on why do you keep waking up in this area when you die like what is this? And it was just a great, great game. The combat was extremely fun. There were lots of avenues for self-expression. All the weapons had like crazy asymmetric designs between them. And each weapon had two modes and you had an offhand gun. So there's a lot of setups. I like to play with the hammer. Almost no one <laughs> played with the big slow hammer. I love the hammer. People love the katana. Like there's lots of great weapons to use. In my opinion, it's the best iteration of the Demon Dark Souls formula and the most risky and fast-paced combat of all those games. Great game. And Red Dead Redemption 2, the last game I'll recommend of the decade. I worked on this game. I have to promote it. And, oh, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, honestly, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better example of AAA craftsmanship than RDR2. Everyone should own this game. Everyone should play this game. It's amazing to me that they were able to pull off the storytelling that they pull off in the game at the pace they want to kind of like tell it at and you know go to anyone like pretend red dead redemption 2 and 1 didn't exist and go to any publisher and say hey i want to make a super slow paced super serious um game set in the dying days of the wild west in louisiana or wherever the hell it's taking place and uh they'll tell you to rightfully go screw off because like nobody wants to play a western western movies don't sell western tv shows don't sell nobody wants to play a cowboy nobody wants to play a mature slow-paced game that takes itself seriously and yet rdr2 did it and did it you know with like general disregard to everyone's opinion and it's just great all right predictions for the next decade people like to hear pundits rattle off nonsense predictions so i'll keep that tradition alive these don't hold me to these these are just random thoughts okay i didn't even think that hard about these but here are my predictions for the next decade ar ar costs will drastically go down and become the next paradigm shift everyone is looking for the tabletop industry will be disrupted the most 
There'll be some downsides to long-term AR use, like your eyes getting screwed up, that will leave traditional TVs and console experiences alone for the most part. So that's my prediction. Subscriptions. Companies will follow other media content and aggregate under subscriptions, even on a negative margin. Then people will realize gamers don't actually want 100 different games as options because games aren't engaged with and consumed in the same way TVs and movies are. Subscriptions will adapt to have one to five key games as a service games that will be exclusive to them that will be the kind of like cornerstone to hold down the entire subscription. Then they will have many other one to five hour small experiences to be fillers in between games as a service content releases. So an example of this is EA will have Madden and FIFA to two cornerstone games as a service games, maybe even Call of Duty multiplayer. And then they'll release like small one to five hour like stories or campaigns or other games that like are like a like a life is strange game, like a life is strange chapter. And they'll release those and they'll keep you like interested. And when you're bored of like FIFA, maybe you get frustrated, you want to leave for a few months, you play a couple of these filler games, then you go back to FIFA. These small experiences will be cheaper, self-contained, and more targeted towards a single audience. Lastly, console companies will become content companies. Sony and Nintendo will become content companies, and their consoles will provide multiple services, including Microsoft's Project xCloud. The real money is from content IEPs, not controlling a console ecosystem. Plus, they can't compete with Amazon and Microsoft. Um, Those are my predictions. All right, that's it. That's a decade in review. Um, a little long, a little long, but we had a lot to go over. Um, yeah, what a crazy decade. Just think, you know, we, we kicked it off and the PS3 and the Wii, uh, the Wii was still around and, uh, you know, Xbox 360 was king and now we end it and like the PS4 and Xbox one are going away. The switch will be around for a while. Both of them will release new console iterations next year, but it almost doesn't matter because, you know, Fortnite, Minecraft, and these other, like, games have kind of, like, proved that content is king, and, you know, people like to feel like a part of a community, and Zeitgeist shifts because of Twitch and other things I mentioned, and, you know, it's the Wild West still, and, like, I think there's avenues for lone wolf developers, for small teams coming out of college, and there's avenues for you to even create like smaller AAA companies with, you know, the tools and everything that Unreal and Unity have done. I didn't even cover that. Like Unity in the last 10 years has completely shifted games. You used to actually have to create your own game engine or pay Unreal 2 or 3 a crazy amount of money to use their game engine. And now Unity is basically like, hey, you don't even need a CTO anymore. Unity will be your CTO. I mean, the last decade has completely shifted game development in the game industry and can't wait for, you know, to see what happens next because, frankly, I don't know and no one knows, and that's the greatest part of this industry. All right, I'm Eric McConnell. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. Also, leave a comment. Let me know how I'm doing. Give me five stars. Give me whatever rating, whatever, on your podcast app, and that's it. I mean... this is the last podcast of uh, 2019. So I'll see you guys next week and we'll be celebrating my two year anniversary of this week in games. Take care.